In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, this morning, um, and for the next few weeks, um, I want us to focus our attention on really some of the most important words in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we sometimes refer to those as second and third Isaiah, are some of the most beautiful uh, verses that you will ever read. And, uh, and many of them will be familiar to some of you because, of course, we read these passages uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas or leading up to Easter. Um, they were certainly a major uh, part of helping Jesus shape his understanding of himself and of um, his ministry. And I have chosen as a theme for these weeks to sort of bind it all together, um, when the bottom falls out, what then? So these stories, uh, these verses tell a story about an incredible national crisis that took place uh, midway through the 6th century BC. And it is the story about um, how a group of people went through a, a time of disillusionment and despair, and how out of that they learned so many things about themselves and about God. And the reason that I felt that this particular portion would be relevant is because I am keenly aware that as we live our lives, um, certainly in differing degrees, every one of us has tasted something of what this title is about. In other words, every one of us have these moments in our ordinary lives um, when things just collapse, when things are perhaps worse than they were. When it seems like the plates of the earth underneath us have sort of shifted and the circumstances are not the way they once were. Um, one of my favorite writers, Bill Beekner, says, life works us all over before it's done. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, I knew this wonderful Episcopal priest. Uh, he had served the same congregation for some 30 years. And um, he said that one day he came out of the worship service and um, he walked into the fellowship hall. Most of the people there were older as usual. And he said he looked into the faces of everyone gathered. And before his mind could sort of censor, the words came out of his mouth, what a bunch of losers we all are. <laughs> but he was using that term not in a competitive sense, but in a relational sense. Um, because you see, over those three decades, as he looked into the faces of those that were gathered, he realized that over those years, he had perhaps walked to the cemetery with many of those families, um, either to bury a parent or a spouse or even a child. Um, he was just overwhelmed with the sense that he had been there with families when um, really it had all fallen apart, when a child hadn't turned out exactly the way they had hoped, or when a marriage that seemed intact 
had fallen apart. And he just had this sense that everyone there knew something about what happens when the bottom falls out. And of course, one of the resources that is available to us in those kind of times is the stories that other people tell of things that have happened to them and how they have coped or perhaps where they have found God in all of that. You know, anybody can learn from their own experiences. Wise people learn from the experiences of others. In grief recovery groups, there is a saying, you alone can do your grief work, but you don't have to do it alone. By sharing stories, we actually get some insight, we get some perspective. And a lot of times when we hear the stories of other people, um, when we realize um, where they have found strength, that can make all the difference in how we handle our own situations. So, the descendants of Abraham had been living in Palestine at this point for some 13 centuries. Somewhere in the middle of the 6th century BC, they had the terrible experience of being overrun by a foreign invader um, under the leadership of this very cruel leader named Nebuchadnezzar. He had conquered the Assyrians and now set his sights on the holy city of Jerusalem. In 598, the Babylonians conquered the uh, Israeli army and uh, the result of that was that they took 25,000 of the best and the brightest among the Hebrews and they transported them 600 miles into exile. Nebuchadnezzar, sort of like the pharaoh of Egypt hundreds of years earlier, was a big builder and he recognized in these Hebrew architects and craftsmen a very valuable resource. But the result was that families were torn apart. The city of Jerusalem was leveled. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And for 50 years, the Hebrews lived as exiles in a foreign land. So the psalmist writes in words that you remember from the old folk song, by the rivers of Babylon, we lay down and wept. And if you can just imagine um, being in those exiles' shoes this morning. If you can empathize with their situation, two words come to mind. First of all, they were completely disillusioned spiritually. You need to understand that going all the way back to the time of Abraham, these people believed that they were a chosen people. They believed that they were special. And so they would never have to suffer like other peoples. From the time of Moses, these people believed that the land had been given to them by God. This was the promised land. And so it would never be taken away from them. From the time of David, they believed that the city of Jerusalem was holy. And from the time of his son Solomon, they believed that the temple was the very dwelling place of God. So, of course, it would never be destroyed. So now, not only the physical structures, but the very foundations of their faith lay in ruins. 
There is nothing more dangerous than believing that the laws of reality apply to everyone but you. <laughs> I can still remember a, an old seminary professor um, who used to talk about this young college student. Uh, he had had a profound religious conversion, very bright guy, and also apparently very articulate. And so even before he went to seminary, he was a very gifted preacher. But he also had this utter arrogance about him, sort of believing that because he was called by God, nothing could ever happen to him. And one of the ways that that sort of got lived out was that he drove with a reckless abandon. He would leave wherever he was late. He would drive 90 miles an hour to get wherever he was going. And if anybody said anything, if anybody dared to say anything to him, he would always say, oh, God is not going to let anything happen to me. And it will not surprise you that he was killed in a car accident before he was 24 years old. Um, all because of the illusion that it couldn't happen to me. In fact, that happened to Jesus. You remember? At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is out in the wilderness and uh, Satan says to him, go ahead and jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Gravity doesn't apply to you. Dazzle the people. They will think even more of you. But Jesus, unlike that young man, didn't take the bait. Look, I don't know. I don't care how devoted you are to God. If you step off the Empire State Building, the laws of gravity are going to apply to you just like they do to anybody else. In fact, you've probably heard that story about the guy who did just that. And so he's falling very fast, and he, he's passing the 67th floor, and somebody yells out to him, how's it going? <laughs> and he says, so far, so good. <laughs> of course, that was not the end of the story. At the foundation of disillusionment is always an illusion. In the times when the bottom has dropped out of my life, one of my first reactions is to feel like, you know, God has somehow failed me. This is just not fair. And I think that we all have this tendency to a kind of entitled sense of our own existence, as if God owes us some kind of special treatment. So the Hebrews were disillusioned because their erroneous faith had been shattered. Now, the second thing that they experienced, and maybe even worse than that disillusionment, was a profound sense of despair. The belief that not only things were terrible, but they could never change. See, in those 50 years of exile, the people began to realize some of their own responsibility for what happened to them. They had not lived up to their calling as a chosen people, and, uh, which was probably in some ways a very necessary and helpful thing. But at some point, that guilt lapsed over into a deeper sense of shame, a sense of despair about the whole situation and about themselves. You know, they say, Guilt is the negative feelings that we have about what we have done. Shame is the negative feelings that we have about who we are. And when we cross that line, then 
like those Hebrews, we decide there really is no hope for the future. This situation is just beyond anything that even God can do. Some of you have heard me say before that I think for the believer, despair like that is presumptuous. Because it says something about a situation and it says something about God that you and I are not in a position to say. And yet that temptation, like that of disillusionment, is always there whenever the bottom falls out. So, into this experience of disillusionment and despair comes a voice, a prophetic voice, whose coming is nothing but pure grace. And Isaiah points these exiles to an event that is just beyond the horizon, but that their despairing eyes cannot yet see. To the east of Babylon is a rising empire of Persia and an incredible ruler named Cyrus. And Isaiah recognizes in Cyrus the hand of God who will allow the people to return to their homeland, to rebuild, and not just their walls, but also all of their shattered dreams. Comfort, my people. Declare to Jerusalem that her warfare is over. Her sins are forgiven. In the wilderness, in other words, in the places of your life where the wheels have come off, where the bottom has fallen out, where in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And how will they prepare that? Well, say to them, remind them, God says, remind them first of all who they really are. The most important words in these opening verses from 2nd Isaiah are these, my people, your God. It's hard to overestimate the importance of realizing that God's love is not a contract. In other words, you do what you're supposed to do, and God will do what God is supposed to do. And if you default on what you're supposed to do, the deal is off. God's covenant with his people, with the Hebrews then, with you and me, with us today, is an everlasting covenant. The bond that binds me to them, God says, is not something that they created, and therefore it is not something that they alone can break. Which, if you think about it, is exactly what happened to the prodigal son in that famous story that Jesus told. He screws up royally. He goes off to a foreign land where he realizes his own guilt. He wants to return home, but he is ready to say to his father, I have sinned against heaven and earth, and I am no longer worthy to be called your child. And you remember the old man's response? He says, this is my son. It's like he was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And yet how often I have seen people leave the church or stay away from the church because they just didn't think they were good enough. 
how often I have seen people stay away from this table because they thought they were not worthy. Do you understand that the words that Jesus heard spoken over him at his baptism, God also intends for you? As he came out of the waters of baptism, he heard a voice saying, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, whenever he was in the deepest moments of his despair, whenever he wasn't sure what he believed, whenever he wasn't sure how that reformation revolution was going to go, this is what brought him through. He would say to himself, I am baptized. This covenant is not one that you made, and it is not one that you can break. The other thing that that voice reminded them of is that at the heart of this very covenant is everlasting mercy, God's willingness to forgive. And I think that is so hard for us to grasp. God's mercy is greater than all of our destructiveness and all of our brokenness put together. So the Apostle Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Which means qualitatively that God's goodness is always bigger than our badness. And it seems to me that one of the problems we have with that is that egocentrically, we really do believe that we are the most important actors on the stage when in fact that role belongs only to God. And it seems to me that the Hebrews getting to, get, getting to go back and rebuild is as beautiful sign as any I know of how the grace of God works. Years ago, my mentor, John Claypool, my favorite Episcopalian, John used to tell this story about his, his first call was to a little church in a small town in Tennessee. I think it was his first call. Um, and one of the things about going to a new community, and especially this is true in a small town, is that there are always these stories which, in fact, make up the mindset of the people and which are always just waiting to be told. And he said one of the loveliest stories in that town was about something that had happened 50 years before that. Young couple in the, in the community, uh, John and Nellie, both from prominent uh, families in that town, were engaged to be married. It was going to be the biggest event in that town in like a decade. And then, unexplicably, six weeks before the wedding, Nellie eloped with somebody else in the community. This really flashy guy had a lot of money and somehow had seduced Nellie. Well, um, obviously John was devastated. Um, he was humiliated publicly. Um, he still loved Nellie, but his heart was broken. Well, about a year later, word got out in the town that Nellie was back. Great with child. Um, but apparently abandoned by this guy, he had done to her exactly what she had done to John. So the word got out that she was home, and of course, everybody wondered, 
how is John going to respond? They figured he would gloat. He would say, I told you so. You've only gotten what you deserved. But to everyone's astonishment, the day that she came back, he went to her house and asked if he could see her. But Nellie was so filled with self-loathing and guilt that she refused. On two other occasions, he tried with no success. And so, eventually, John wrote a letter to Nellie that 50 years later was still something of a legend in that little community. And in it, he said to Nellie, Nellie, you've done a terrible thing, and you have broken my heart. But I need to tell you something. There is something bigger in this world than what you did. And I am willing, if you are, to go back and try again. It could be that we have a future despite our past. Well, the word was that when Nellie got that letter, she cried for three days. But her response was still, there is not enough love and mercy in this world to forgive anybody for the kind of thing that I have done. You have probably heard that excessive guilt is just the shadow side of excessive pride. She was so caught up in the enormity of her own guilt that she couldn't entertain John's offer. Not long after that, she gave birth to a little girl. And the interesting thing was that month after month, John very patiently and persistently maintained his openness. In fact, he befriended Nellie's little girl. Not a week went by that he didn't lay a little present for her on the porch. He continued to write to Nellie, but she was still locked in her own guilt. Nine years later, one afternoon, Nellie was driving her father's horse and buggy through the town square. Apparently, a bee stung the horse, so frightened the animal that it bolted. It just so happened that John was going through the town square. He saw what had happened. He managed to get in front and to jump on that horse, and at great risk to his own life, was able to quiet it in effect, saving Nellie's life. But in the process, he was badly injured. Broken arm, broken leg, lots of damage. The story is that when the buggy finally stopped, Nellie broke down in tears. She said, John, why don't you just let me be killed? It's exactly what I deserve. And John looked at her, and he said, don't you understand, Nellie? I don't want you to die. I still love you, and we still could have a future if only you will let me in. Apparently, that episode, something shifted in Nellie's heart, and for the very first time, she began um, to entertain the idea that there is a love and a mercy even bigger than her betrayal. And so the word is that the next night, Nellie went to the hospital to see John. They had a long talk. That was the beginning of a process that caused them to go all the way back and talk through all that had led up to that painful betrayal. And 10 years to the day after they were supposed to get married, they were, in fact, united. And they lived together for the next 43 years. 
And the old timers in town would say, if you could just see how Nellie looked at John and how John looked at Nellie, if you could just see how that brokenness got healed, well, it's just the loveliest sight you will ever see in this town. When the bottom falls out, begin by remembering who you really are. You are his beloved child. And there is something bigger in this life than all of our worthiness or unworthiness. Something bigger than all of the circumstances of our lives. It is the everlasting love and mercy of your God.